It's not every day that you get to talk to a marketing genius who's helped brands like Alibaba, Pepsi, Nike, and some of the other bigger brands that you've heard of throughout the world. But this episode, that's exactly who we're talking to. We've got Eric Huberman, the founder of Hawk Media, and he's dropping some really good knowledge on us, like how to keep audiences engaged when, frankly, they've been looking at their cell phone screens too much this year in the time of COVID anyways. He's going to look into his crystal ball. He's going to be talking about you know what he projects for 2021, and he's also going to be talking about stuff that applies to big brands brands as well as small brands, the bootstrap, the small guys, the guys working out of a garage, the startups. This is going to be a really, really cool episode. Lots of content. Make sure you check it out. Here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And at every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock, in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Tim Jordan here back with another episode of AMPM Podcast. Today we are talking about marketing. And marketing is an interesting topic because the majority of this audience are marketplace sellers, right? We're selling on eBay or we're selling on Amazon or we're selling on Walmart. And those platforms frequently have a lot of embedded marketing, right? So I know a lot of Amazon sellers that are complete experts in Amazon PPC. But if they had to run a social media ad to a Shopify site or a Magento site, they would completely be lost. But we all know that you know the, the holy grail of having successful e-commerce business is not being dependent on one platform, becoming platform agnostic. So if we are a marketplace seller, we have to understand general digital marketing for our e-commerce brands to grow, to scale, and so that we're not dependent on an, you know, a business that we could arbitrarily get suspended or the marketplace change the rules or something like that. So our guest today, I have to look over my notes, excuse me. Uh, our guest today, he has serviced over 2,000 brands e-commerce. He's worked for companies like Red Bull, Verizon, Alibaba. His marketing agency here in the U.S. has been valued at over $75 million with 150 employees. But it didn't start like that, did it, Eric? You started with uh, like $350 in sales since your first year in business, and you've grown from there. So if you would give us the kind of the brief intro of who Eric is and, and start with like how you got started in digital marketing, why this became your passion, this your calling, and how you've scaled from just getting started to you know an international business. You've got 150 employees, you're in multiple cities, and you're working for some of the biggest brands in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's the upbringing side of it. Like, It really started as a kid. Um, my dad's a successful entrepreneur. His dad was an entrepreneur. And so anytime I wanted anything, even as a six-year-old, my dad would be like, well, get a job, go work for it, figure it out. And so I was just, you know, and I say that because I, I definitely have to give credence to the fact that like, though maybe not the best teacher, my dad definitely just made me think that like, that's how you make money in life and how you make a living is you go figure it out and make money. Like, it's not like you, you don't ask other people for it. So getting a job, the only time I had jobs when I wanted to learn something. So, I mean, I... As an eight-year-old, I started a beanie baby business and bought and sold beanie babies and made a few thousand dollars as eight year, as an eight-year-old. So bought it like a BMX and a electric guitar that I wanted and saved money for a car. But so I've always just took for granted the idea that I'd run my own business. And not to make too long of a story short, um, I, I would try to shorten this a little bit. You know, went through college, took different jobs, learned different things, started my first business while in college, which was filtering storm drains realized that wasn't that passionate about it. I like the fact that we're cleaning our water, but like 
I didn't want to be jumping into storm drains the rest of my life. So got out of college, went into real estate, thinking like real estate development and everything sounded really interesting. And I started one week to the day before the entire economy collapsed in 2008. And uh, yeah, I did not that you kind of you, you mentioned it briefly, but that whole year living in Los Angeles, I made $350. And again, even though I've come from a successful family, my dad was pretty adamant that I get nothing and like I'm on my own. So like lots of credit card debt, trying to figure it out. I, I remember during that time, I get to like, I, I got to the point where it was maxed out and I'd find ways to make money on the side and uh, would like pay off just a little bit of that debt. And then like the end of every month, I'd be like looking in my fridge at like a loaf of bread and some cheese and some ketchup. And like, that was my dinner. Um, so like went through that, which actually I think is a really nice thing to go through because fear kind of goes away. Like, sorry, like is maybe like painful as that might sound. It's really not that bad. While you figure it out, like you get through it. And it, it, when you know what the bottom looks like and like really not making any money and being broke and trying to figure out how you're going to pay rent, then you can take big risks because the bottom isn't that bad. When you know what that's like and there isn't an unknown, it was helpful. So anyways, enough of the rant. Um, started a, really, I started scrambling to try to figure out what else I would do because that obviously wasn't working. And I ended up launching an uh, online music company. It was one-on-one business coaching for musicians. And a uh, little rewind in college i made fun of marketing majors because i was like what do you do like draw pretty pictures and get an a if it's got the right colors like that company on that business coaching i had to figure out how to acquire customers and i actually figured out a hack for craigslist where we were posting in the gig section to get musicians to want to learn business and it worked and we ended up with fifteen thousand artists on the platform and it really taught me the idea of just being where your customers looking and giving them a value proposition like just learned by doing the next come, I ended up building that for two years, hiring a CEO to take it over who ran it for another three profitably, and then just realized it was never going to be a big business. So we ended up sunsetting it. And then I started a t-shirt subscription company called Swag of the Month. And that's when I actually uh, started reinvesting some of the income into Google ads. There were no Facebook ads yet. We did some different PR. I really learned how to do PR at that point and built that company for a year and then sold it and then ended up launching an activewear brand called Ellie out of the same incubator that had just launched Dollar Shave Club. And we blew it out of the water. I mean, we did 2 million in revenue in the first four months. Like it was a rocket ship. And uh, there we had a budget. So at at that point, all the things I wanted to do with my last company that was bootstrapped down to be scrappy with, I just got to open up all the stuff that I had learned from being scrappy and spend now. And it just skyrocketed and it worked. So once I built that, we sold it a year later to Bally Total Fitness. I started advising and consulting for a bunch of brands on how to drive revenue growth using marketing. I had built a reputation in LA of knowing what I was doing. Um, I had had some good exits. And so I was advising. And then I just realized how broken the marketing ecosystem is. Because when a, when a brand, when it comes time for a brand to execute on marketing, you have two options, either hire in-house or hire an agency. And what I found was hiring in-house for most of these companies, it's not cost effective because good marketers cost a lot of money because they can drive good revenue. And that's if you can actually get good marketers to join your company, which 99 out of 100 times, they don't want to join your brand. They only want to be at the big companies or be independent or something. And then if you somehow accomplish to attract them, afford them, et cetera, you're still operating in a vacuum. And my favorite example of this is the CMO of Pepsi went on stage at a big marketing conference a few years ago and said, you know, agencies are BS. Nobody needs an agency. And then they launched that brilliant Kendall Jenner ad where she solves racism with a can of Pepsi. And they did that themselves. And so that outside perspective, as well as the relationships agencies build with the platforms, et cetera, like there's a reason they exist. The problem on that side is there's no barrier to entry to start an agency. Any 
17-year-old with a Facebook account or a TikTok account can say they're a TikTok marketer. And it happens all the time. And so 99% of agencies out there are frankly full of shit. And the few that are any good tend to get really expensive, want long contracts, high minimums, or something else that makes them hard to work with. So just got sick of the whole ecosystem, grabbed some people I knew in the industry that were really good at their individual skills, like a Facebook marketer, an email marketer, web designer, et cetera, went back to these companies and said, hey, everything's a la carte, month to month, cheaper than hiring in-house. But now I've got this team of seven people that's like my SWAT team that we can spin up and down what you need when you need it. So that's how we started. And then frankly, we've grown it. Like it's a lot of reactive growth where it's like, oh, now we, we, word of mouth kicked off. People knew about me. My brand helped kick it off. And so all of a sudden we started getting business in and then oh, we needed two email marketers. We needed a second Facebook marketer and we started to scale it. Then we needed management. And I mean, now we're almost seven years later and 160, 70 people, don't know the exact headcount, have a venture fund as well. We invest in a lot of marketing technology and we've really tried to build something big here because our true mission is to create accessibility to great marketing for everyone. And that the idea there is it doesn't need to be mutually exclusive. You can have an amazing marketing team that will work with a small business or an unsexy business that usually couldn't attract those people. And so that confluence has allowed us to work with some of the biggest brands out there. We've worked with, as you mentioned, some, but like Nike, Unilever, Estee Lauder, et cetera. But we also work with little startups out of people's garages and up and coming and law firms and companies that normally can't get this talent. We just signed one of the biggest real estate development companies in the country um, that normally wouldn't be working with an agency like ours because they would go to some hole in the wall real estate agency that frankly doesn't do great work. So that's what we're trying to build and continue to try to build. We've accomplished it in a lot of ways. But yeah, global expansion, as you mentioned, is a big part of the plan. We already work all over the world, but actually opening offices. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, we had plans to open another three to five offices this year. We've hired people in those territories, but we're going to probably get brick and mortar once things start to subside. So yeah, building it out strong. So you've done a lot. And currently right now, one thing that stuck out to me is that, you know, with these these big capabilities that you have, you're helping service some of the biggest companies and, and brands in the world. But you said you're also helping some of these bootstrap working out of the garage, these small startup businesses, right? Which is unusual because a lot of companies, you know, they, they stick in a certain lane. We help this type of brand and we help this type of avatar. We help this type of, you know, client, but we don't mix and match. But I think it's very interesting that you get kind of this bird's eye view on what's going on that works for small companies and large companies, brand new startups to establish brands. And, you know, if, if you're doing well, you must have a really good sampling of different techniques that work across the board, right? And we know the life cycle. Like that's the helpful part too. It's like, we've been where you're trying to go because we've worked with the biggest brands in the world. So like we know every step of the way, what's next, what you need to start investing in. And that helps too. We, you don't really outgrow us. So if I'm a small company and, and you have that bird's eye view, understanding of what that life cycle needs to be and how to move through all the stages, how, if I'm a small company, can I access that Fortune 100 you know, marketing capabilities on a small budget? Tell me how I go about doing that as a small business, startup business, e-commerce business. So, I mean, again, we don't bifurcate our staff. So the same people working on these bigger brands are working on smaller brands too. So there's not like a junior role and a senior role. It's, it's all senior. So it's fractional. That's how it's affordable is they're going to work on six companies at the same time. And so you're dividing your cost up among six companies, which allows it to be more affordable because you probably couldn't afford to pay six times what we charge, but you can afford that price. So that's how it's, it is. It's not a complicated business model. It's just that's how we do it. But we, we had a thesis that proved out where high level expertise part time will trump full time low level expertise in marketing every day because the opportunity cost of actually managing that marketing properly 
is such a higher ROI than having someone that's just grinding on it. There are there are roles in marketing that take that, which we don't really offer. If someone needs to just have someone that's grinding day in, day out, they're better off just hiring someone internally for that. And we will coach on that. We're not shy about saying, don't hire us for that, do this. And you know, one of them we don't offer right now is PR because we've believed like we're starting to figure out ways to uh, sort of complement an internal team, but there's a part of public relations that is a grind. And if you have a grind position, that's better off in-house because you are paying a markup on heads. That's the business model. So, but when you need high level expertise part-time, we are the best option and that's how we've built it. So another thing that you've, you've talked about already a couple of times is the difference between in-house and outsourcing. And you know, in the entrepreneurial space, whatever business it is, there's really a great divide on mindset about which one is appropriate or which one is not. You know, do we build this big team and, you know, do they completely own everything for this company? And, you know, is this all they, you know, live, work and breathe? But another thing that you said makes a lot of sense. And I have some experience in marketing and I've, I've also noticed that one, everybody thinks they're a marketer. Most aren't right. But the few marketers out there are really expensive. You know, a, a decent marketer is going to be, you know, typically a six-figure salary here in the U.S. And you're right; they don't necessarily want to invest their time into a small brand or a startup company because they don't know if that company is going to be lasting a year. But they're getting job offers because they're in such high demand by these big established brands, and you know, it's sexier and it's more appealing and those things. So it is hard to attract really, really good talent. It's also hard to afford really, really good talent. So it sounds to me like you have this. You know, well, you've developed your whole business around this, so I'm sure you're convicted in it. But you would offer the advice of outsourcing this because, and and I'm going to simplify this and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you're saying is, if you can't afford a really high level person, you don't need to afford a really high level person. You just need to be able to afford them a few hours because a really high level person could probably do in three or four hours a week what a novice grinder that is trying to figure this out might take forty hours a week. Is that right? So, so how would you like, how would, what's the advice you would give to people when they're making a decision outsource or in-house? I'd say it's not binary is actually my answer. It's, it's sometimes you do, like, it depends on the stage of your company. It depends what your needs are, but there, and that's why you have to understand the benefits and drawbacks of both and don't get emotional about it. That is the biggest failure I see in brands is they get emotionally charged by the idea of owning it. And so they decide to hire mediocre people but they own it. I, I'm dealing with this with a client right now that is brought someone in house. that's like a junior marketer that is now firing a team of five experts because this junior marketer is going to supposedly handle everything. And it's like, things are working really well. You're now breaking. And this has happened over and over again. We hear, oh, we'll come back when, you know, if things don't work, we can always come back. I'm, and I try to explain like, no, that's when it's too late. We just had this happen where we took a company from three to 130 million in revenue in two years because they got so big, they decided to build it in house. They went back down to like 50 million in revenue, which sounds like, well, they're still doing 50. Sure. But when you do that in a business, a lot of you know, as your product owners, like you have all this inventory, you have all these things, like you end up underwater. When they were firing us, they said, is it our fees? They're like, no, we actually have a bigger budget to hire in-house because we are cost effective. Like, is it performance? Like, no, obviously you guys have skyrocketed us. We just feel better to have it ourselves. And they hired a bunch of idiots, basically. So (laughs) I'm just going to, I'm not calling them out, but you get it. That's why I'm not naming them. But it's just, I've looked at, they had me come in and take a look at what they were doing. And I was like, because I try to do the right thing, even though we weren't working together and help out. So the answer is generally it's a balance. It's at some points you're going to need certain things in house and you're going to need an agency and it's all in different stages. And it all is dependent on how you're structuring your business, but usually you want both. And the example I always give is like, first off, 
you can't compete with my Facebook team. I have an amazing team of Facebook marketers that have been doing it since Facebook launched their marketing platform. We have a full-time team, senior team at Facebook on Slack with us full-time, helping us with any campaigns we're doing, monitoring our campaigns with us, helping us through problems, telling us when new products are coming out. You know, like you just, unless you're a Fortune 500 brand, they won't do that for you. So that alone, we can easily increase ROI on Facebook. That's just one example, but there's, we have that partnership with most platforms. So a lot of times we're just, we are going to do better by nature because we're more valuable to the partners than you are. An individual brand versus an agency, I come with 500 brands. They're going to give me a little different service than one of those brands. Yeah, I get it. So uh, another thing that I want to keep utilizing is this bird's eye view, right? Because you've talked about uh, enough things that I'm, I'm realizing, hey, you know, you've got kind of this like your finger on the pulse. In 2020, things are changing fast, right? And we all know that businesses, especially, you know, especially online businesses have had to pivot. Fortunately, a lot of that has been, you know, a pivot to absorb the amount of growth and demand, right? Because people are coming online to shop as opposed to brick and mortar stores. But, you know, a huge increase in growth can be a bad thing. It can create a crisis for a company. So whether you're helping small brands, big brands, you've had, you know, six months of pandemic to try to work through this. How are you suggesting people adapt and and react and become flexible in like the crazy world of COVID? Yeah. Um, so when it first hit, this has been really cool. We actually created a practice. We have a full-time content person on our internal marketing team. And I basically told them like once a week, I want you to aggregate like our partner's data, our data, everything we're seeing and put out a weekly report. And it was our COVID report for a while. We now just change it to our weekly, re- our Hawk Media weekly report um, just on what's going on in the market. And that report helped me and our clients and everyone see in real time what's happening, what is actually trending. Because when March 13th hit and everyone went into quarantine, or 16th was when everyone went to quarantine in LA and New York, et cetera, like we had so many people wanting to shut down their marketing and, you know, cut everything off. And we were trying to say, like, everyone's stuck home right now, but they're all making the same amount of money because those layoffs are really restaurant workers who are now making more money on unemployment than they were before. Like, logically, this shouldn't be a problem. So give it a second. And us being month to month, which is a big part of our value proposition, we're like, fire us when you're doing bad. Don't fire us ahead of time. Just if something goes wrong, then you can let us go. And that ended up being a blessing because we did have people that just got ran scared and had to cut it off. We also did marketing for things like Planet Fitness and a chain of car washes and stuff that were like, we have no customers. We have to stop marketing. But we were able to keep most and our average customer in Q2 doubled their revenue as most people on Shopify did. Shopify itself almost doubled its revenue. It was like 96% revenue growth in Q2. So, you know, what we learned, and you're kind of saying it, we have a view between us and our partner data, because again, we have access to Clavio's data, Shopify's data. We own the biggest uh, business intelligence tool on Shopify. We're a big investor in a company called Yaguara that Shopify also invested in directly. So we have all this different data that we're able to work with our partners on that we can really see like what is happening right now. Let's make a decision right now. Not we think something's like anticipation and planning ahead. Sure. But when you have an unprecedented event, you got to just work with the data you have, or you're going to end up acting emotionally. And we have that too, where we did have a few clients that didn't listen to us that cut off all their marketing in March. They're half out of business. They can't recover because these days, digital marketing is the lifeblood of these companies. And if you cut that off, you're just cutting off your oxygen. Like, yeah, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's what we ended up seeing. So that's how, so in terms of COVID in general, and like six months later, we just saw that, and I, 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 we actually threw a conference in October, or sorry, October, in April, April 7th, 
that uh, we had like 4,500 CEOs show up. We had like Damon John speak and Anthony Scaramucci and all these big business guys. And what we, what the consistent thing across all of them was, was in a situation like this, the strong survive in the sense of like, you have to go on the offense. You can't get defensive and pull back and get play scared and run away. You got to pivot, adapt, change. You know, there's some very large companies that can afford to just hold off for a little while, but most businesses can't afford to just go dark for six months. So you have to find an alternative. And we, in the beginning of this, we're touting the idea of like the three week, three month, three year model, where it's like COVID is going to last three weeks, three months, or three years. Let's just assume those are the buckets because we have no idea. At three weeks, nothing's going to happen. Doesn't matter. Doesn't even, we don't even have that discussion. So let's assume it's three months. At three months, you've got to probably make some, you have to adapt a little bit to make some money to figure out how you're going to get through three months. Three years, I was like, if this thing like shuts down the world for three years, the whole world's changing. Like it's not even a topic either. So let's just assume the three month thing. Again, I thought I was really smart back then. It turns out that this might last 18 months or whatever the hell it's going to. <laughs> but this was when everyone thought quarantine was going to be for two weeks. So um so yeah, at three months, I was like, we have to adapt. And we pushed a lot of our people. I was on the phone many times a day with the CEOs we work with, just talking business strategy. That's how I made myself available. And to this day, what we've seen is crises will happen. Like COVID's a global crisis that affected everyone. I mean, let's take the biggest companies in the world right now, like Apple, Google, Amazon, all getting threatened with antitrust lawsuits, you know, trade problems with you know sanctions on China and blah, blah, blah. Like, they're dealing with massive problems. And those are the biggest companies in the world. So any entrepreneur that thinks it's going to be different is high. And like the real truth here is whether it's COVID or a lawsuit or an angry employee or someone quitting or your manufacturer going out of business or someone screwing you, it's always going to be something. So just get used to it and learn how to adapt on the fly because that's running a business. Yeah, completely agree. So now that we've gone from like the, maybe this will be three weeks to, oh, this is more than three months to, we don't know when this is going to last. We've gone through some cycles of things. Like one was, and, and you mentioned it, everybody was at home. What are they going to do? They're going to sit on their laptops. They're going to sit on their cell phone. They've got more screen time, right? So the power of digital marketing massively increased because we've got more eyeballs looking at your media. That started to adapt. Also, Fortune 500 cut their marketing. So the cost to advertise on Facebook dropped 30% in Q2. So the people that stuck with it maxim like crushed it because the market share. So e-commerce, the before pre-COVID, e-commerce had about a 13% share of consumer spending to brick and mortar, it was 13 and 87%. During COVID, it's jumped to 30% from 13. So the market share over doubled. The spending did not decline, and the cost to advertise decreased 30%. That's why, like, if you doubled, you were just kind of status quo in the past quarter. That's crazy. But now that we're moving on to like five or six months, I'm starting to see it in some realms. And, and I want your opinion on this. Uh, I think I suspect I'm right. We're almost running into a period or maybe a phase of this thing where people are getting like digital fatigue, right? So where I'm seeing it is in like the world of webinars, right? Like I used to do a lot of webinars and a lot of online content and people are just sick of it because all of the, the different content that everybody was doing in different formats have all moved to one format. So there's a little bit of webinar fatigue. There's some ad fatigue. People want to actually put their cell phones down and, and walk around, you know, walk around their front yard, take a, take a, you know, take a hike, ride their bike, something. So as things have changed, like this attention deficit is, is actually increasing. How have you started to pivot digital marketing to retain that attention and retain that focus on the digital marketing that you're doing? Yeah. So you, you nailed it in terms of like webinars, Zoom meetings, that kind of stuff is starting to, 
there's a lot of fatigue and zoom fatigue is like a term I've heard a hundred times now, which is valid. I have it. Like I've started taking less video calls and just getting on my phone. And even if I'm just pacing around my living room and my laptops right here, it's like, I don't need you to be staring at me, but I know I'm like, it's, it's, it's even subconscious because I'm like the least insecure person on the planet, but I'm sitting in front of my computer, staring at my camera and I can't move because, you know, and I normally do pace when I talk. So I think that even yeah. subtle things like that cause it. And so what we're talking about is like going past the idea of broadcast into the idea of in- true engagement and interaction. So like even for brands that are like, we've recommended like mass cooking classes. There's a, like, we, we've talked about this a lot with the idea of making lemonade out of lemons. Like here's a situation where we know everyone's home. We know every, no one has anything to do. It's changing a little bit now, but up until recently, nobody had anything else to do. So like, let's offer that. So like even Hawk Media, we did an every other week event where we had a cooking class. We had a poetry night. We had uh, a whole bunch of other things. I actually joined in on a painting class where I'm helping host a VR uh, event. Burning Man was in VR. And like, these are things that it's not just sitting in front of Zoom. It's still screen, which is hard to avoid right now because you just can't really do stuff outside. The only other things we've seen is like encouraging people to do things on their own in a competitive social way. So even internally for our own staff, we have uh, Operation Keep It Tight, we call it. We've had it for years in different formats. And we basically just check in on Slack with your workouts every day. And everybody was competing for who can work out the most. And then we put teams together and you know whichever team works out the most. And just small stuff like that that gets people out moving but still engaging. Because I think a part, there's a lot of loneliness happening right now too. So that human connection is important. But I think yeah. also getting people away from their screens is important because people are consuming like 70% more content than they did. Exactly. And I think that one thing that you said resonates, especially when it comes to digital marketing is, yes, there is fatigue, but I think that fatigue is kind of counterbalanced by loneliness, right? So yes, people are tired of staring at Facebook constantly, but people are still staring at Facebook because that's how they connect with their friends. That's how they connect with their coworkers. That's how they connect with audiences. So we as digital marketers, we have responsibility to pivot, right? Because we have to stay digital for the most part. But I think that we can take advantage of the community, take advantage of connections, take advantage of connect, you know, connecting people. So I know that you have an upcoming event, e-commerce in LA, something that, that I'd like to hear briefly about. But I want to know, like we've already discussed this fact of, of webinar fatigue and Zoom fatigue and, and some sometimes just marketing fatigue. So you obviously must have a few tricks up your sleeve and a few ideas. If you're still going forward with an online event for e-commerce sellers and e-commerce brands, as you're going into this event, how are you differentiating it to make sure that people still are interested and not just running away from it? Yeah, hundred um, percent. It's, it's a challenge because it's not perfect because there's still the fact that zoom is one of the platforms we're using, but uh, yeah, just to give a little insight into that. So we're hosting e-commerce week LA. It's a partnership with the city of LA and mayor Garcetti basically think New York Fashion Week, but LA and e-commerce. So pre-COVID, the intention was, and this is going to be the first annual, we announced it a year ago, was to have events going on in all the major e-commerce brands all over town and the partners and just making it a whole LA ecosystem thing where hopefully as time builds on and years go by, people want to fly in every year this week. It's the week of October 1st every year. And uh, you know we've been throwing an annual brand summit up until now called Hawkfest. So we've done that three years in a row and had 600 or so brand owners at that. And so this was basically the next step of building it into a full week of events that are not just hosted by us, but hosted by the whole community. So instead, because of what's going on, we decided to go virtual with it. And the way we've been playing with it is everybody that's hosting events, whether it's FabFitFun, MeUndies, uh, the Books, 
a bunch of different people. We have an aspect of like a panel or discussion that's, let's say, 30 minutes of like good content that they can, you know, their thought leaders in about like, you know, how FabFitFun is building subscriptions or curating brands or however they're doing it. And then we have another 30 to minutes to an hour of activity. So FabFitFun, as an example, is having people pitch them their products to include it in a box that, you know, they send out to 1.5 million people. So, you, you know, it's reach for the brand. We have a VC pitch competition we call Hawk Cage instead of Shark Tank, haha. But um, we have uh, a flower arrangement class that we're doing with the Books where you can actually buy their flowers for a discount and then they'll teach you how to actually make a flower arrangement. We have a, for with MeUndies, we have an underwear design competition that whoever designs the best pair of underwear gets a shopping spree on MeUndies. Uh, we have a competition to win a Peloton. We have all these fun things we're doing to try to get people to do things, not just watch. Because I think, again, it's not perfect. They're still going to be watching the screen. We also have a Slack channel we built for this called Brand Club LA that is basically all brand participants to be able to connect on Slack, have an ongoing community. We already have, I think, 13 or 1400 people in it. Um, we're expecting over 10,000 people to uh, e-commerce week. And so it's all these different ways that we're trying to create engagement and outside stuff happening. And frankly, over the next two weeks before it, we're going to be you know, working even harder to create more of that. We've got the core content done. And so that, there's a lot of our attention is going to how do we go above and beyond? We also have a cocktail making class that the first 100 signups got a free cocktail kit. We have a cooking class, same thing. First 100 signups got a free free ingredients. So it's those kind of things where it's a little more than just staring at Zoom. And I think, again, it's not perfect. We've talked about this a lot. It's hard to be perfect when you're actually locked inside in a pandemic. Like it's not going to be necessarily perfect, but getting close to there. And then frankly, next year, we'll hopefully be back to normal events. And that's the goal is like build this as a jumping off point for next year where we're going to go back to hosting events all over town, et cetera. And if someone wanted to, to get signed up, you said this is free. How would they sign up for this event and be notified? ecommerceweek.la or yeah ecommerceweek.la i almost said .com but uh it's literally just the url so you've made some adjustments you know the way that you're helping brands market and the companies that have accepted and they've kind of adopted this increased screen time and increased ability to be digitally marketed to and decreased cost of ads because it's not competitive you know things have gone well if you could look into your crystal ball right now for 2021 for e-commerce brands what do you see 2021 being like? Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a, a real, I actually just before we got on this podcast, I was talking to our head of strategy about this. I think it's going to be a great year for e-commerce because I don't think the market share is going to go back. I think that what, and I don't think, I know what happened. The biggest growth in e-commerce in the past uh, six months has been baby boomers adopting it more than they used to. Millennials yep. and Gen Z were buying on e-com already, but baby boomers that were still in their habits of going to the market started like really adopting it. So I don't think we'll see a trend the other way. And so now I think it's just a lot of these companies are going to work out kinks. There's going to be a lot more focused on it. A lot more money is, I mean, it's literally almost tripled, like a lot more money is invested in that ecosystem. I think we're going to see some really exciting stuff coming in 2021 because we just basically jumped five years ahead in terms of innovation. And with innovation, like adoption and finance are the big limitations there. And it, adoption just accelerated five years, which brings finance with it. So I think we're going to see some really cool stuff come out of that idea. And I do think that, you know, a lot of people will go back with, for impulse buys to run to the market. You will run out of catch up, you run down the street. But yeah. most stuff, people have now gotten the habit of just buying online. So I am curious to see how, you know, the, you we're talking about Amazon. Amazon owns 55% of online purchases in the US. It's insane. I am curious how that's looked at from antitrust. I'm curious how people compete with that. But Shopify came out of nowhere and took 5% market share recently. 
and Walmart has shot 5%. I think that there's still a huge market for independent brands getting out there. And again, our own brands that we work with are all crushing it right now. And so I think that they're going to now be able to build off of that momentum. And 2021 is where it's, you know, right now people are still like apprehensive of what's happening. I think Q4 will really see if this is here to stay. And next year is when people are going to reinvest and you're going to see a lot of cool stuff come out of it. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I hope you're right. And I'm sure everybody listening right now, e-commerce sellers, hope, hope they're right. But, but I, would, I would say this too to, to the listeners, don't take your foot off the gas. Don't do it. I know that, you know, and we talked about this earlier in this episode, it's kind of natural human conditioning, you know, to when things start to change, we slow down, you know, the, the car's speeding up and we don't know what's around that next corner. You know, it's probably smart to slow down, but at least in e-commerce, every time we have rounded a corner this year, the road has gotten smoother and straighter and faster. And there's, you know, there's been more opportunity on it. So I know this Q4 is going to be crazy, but, but keep, keep pushing. Running a business is going to battle is what we always talk like. Act that way. Own that. Own the fact that like you're getting up and going to battle. You don't get to retreat. You retreat, you die. Like that. That's it. So like anytime there's a challenge, run at it full speed. If you do that, you won't regret it. Because if the outcome either is the same, which is you fail either way, so you might as well take give it a shot, or it's not. But you guarantee your outcome when you retreat or hold back. You guarantee failure versus giving yourself a shot, even if you're apprehensive or scared. Absolutely. We're getting close on time. We need to wrap it up. I know that you've thrown a lot of stuff out that it's going to take me a day to digest. And I appreciate all this good information. I appreciate this information, especially coming from that bird's eye view that you have of working with small brands and large brands. That being said, I want to make sure that if anybody wants to reach out to Hawk Media and find out more about what you do for small brands, large brands, anywhere in between, how would people find you and how would people get more information? Yeah, a couple easy ways. One is just hawkmedia.com. We will give a free consultation to anyone. So we're always looking to help brands and gives advice. So always happy to chat, connect. Uh, and if you want to reach out to me directly, any social media channel at or slash Eric Huberman. So E-R-I-K-H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N on any of those channels, it's easy to reach me. Try to okay. be pretty accessible. Awesome. Well, I'm getting excited for next year to come out in LA to your event. I'll definitely sign up for the for the uh, e-commerce in LA uh, free online event this year. And uh, those of you that are listening, I appreciate you sticking it out for the episode. Hopefully you've come up with something valuable, but I also hope that you're encouraged because you know, every time I talk to somebody in digital marketing or in e-commerce and I ask that question about, you know, resiliency and, you know, how do we survive these pandemics? Everybody kind of like smiles and shrugs. You're like, what do you mean survive? Like, it's not about surviving. It's like keeping up, you know, because things have been so good. So, you know, as, as I watch the news headlines this year and everything is so depressing and so discouraging, I turn that off and look at my business and look at the business of my friends and, and you know, all those around us in the e-commerce world. And that encourages me. It gets me excited. And I definitely think you're right, Eric. I think that uh, even when the lockdown stop, people are going to be used to shopping online. And I think that that just really accelerates our opportunities and gives us a great chance. So e-commerce is awesome, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the final, uh, final word here. And uh, continue to be creative, continue to be innovative, continue to be flexible. And uh, the world is our oyster, I reckon would be a good way of saying it, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Eric, for being on. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you guys on the next episode.